file this one under Music Adjacent. As many listeners will know, zines were and are about more than just underground music. So many great small press publications from the 90s were obsessive about all manner of subject. The shelves of Tower Records were packed with diverse titles like The Imp, Comet Bus, Hermanot, Temp Slave, The Baffler, Heinous, The Match, The Mystery and Adventure Series Review, and more. And at the top of that heap surely belongs San Francisco's late great Murder Can Be Fun. Launched in 86 and named after a Frederick Brown pulp novel, Murder Can Be Fun was devoted to painstakingly researched stories about death and disaster. The writing was top-notch and the humor obviously of the gallows variety, and there's a definite punk sensibility in forming the whole thing. Some of the best issues were focused on a single subject, with titles like Sports Thrills, Death at Disneyland, and The Sinister Cult of Mormon. John Marr, Murder Can Be Fun's writer, editor, and publisher, kept at it for over 20 years before calling it a lunch. Back in 2000, I'd done an interview with John by mail for my own fanzine, and yes, once upon a time, mailers were a thing in the zine world, although in the year 2000, I had no excuse. Anyway, I jumped at the chance to reconnect with John to talk books, punk rock, publishing, and much more. Please enjoy this chat with John Marr of Murder Can Be Fun on Rock Writ. I read somewhere that by the time you were 10 years old, you had a personal library of over 500 books. So how on earth did you manage that at such a young age? By hook and crook. I mean, I just, um, you know, when I was very young, I, I loved to read. Even though I was not an early reader, I learned to read first grade like most other people in, in the U.S. But I just, um, you know, loved books. And uh, my family, you know, we sometimes would go to flea markets and pick up books there. Then I get books as gifts. I mean, you know, what do you give a kid who has like um, 100 books? You give him another book. You know, when I was fourth in fourth grade, I discovered the joy of the... Um, Local libraries um, use book sale, and I buy a bag or two of books every year, and they just gradually, gradually accumulated. And what kind of things were you reading? It was like um, you know, you know kids' books, but um, you know, there was some skewing. I certainly liked um, you know, there's there's books about crimes and disasters written for children. And I certainly, you know, there weren't weren't a lot of them, but you know, when I come across them, I really liked them. You know, one of the big big things in childhood was um, the whole um, Alfred Hitchcock publishing industry. Um, Alfred Hitchcock never wrote any books that I know of, but um, because of the TV show, um, his name got licensed on these books, like anthologies of stories you know, that had a similar bent um, to those the types of movies that Hitchcock made, you know, some, a lot of black humor, dark murder stories. And there was a series of these anthologies um, um, written for children, or, I mean, aimed, aimed at the child, child market. Um, and I just absolutely devoured those. And then I, you know, I certainly liked the normal um, childhood series, um, like the Hardy Boys. But you know, one thing, one way I differed from most of my friends is um, very early on, I discovered that the Hardy Boys had been rewritten in the 50s. They were updated, removed a lot of racist stereotypes. And you know, some of the things they did were good, but uh, the books kind of became bland and I, blander. And I quickly developed a preference for the, um, the original versions of the first like, um, 30 or so books. Sometimes Hardy Boys carry guns. Um, they're a lot more violent, and it's just you know a little little darker, a little more fun. Huh, interesting. I've never read the early, like the really early Hardy Boys, but they always among kind of boys literature, they have this reputation for being a bit more kind of sanitized than some of the other things that were happening. A bit slicker. Yeah, I think it's like the first 20, 25 or so books, um, you know, that, that were written in the twenties, thirties, and forties are. Not as slick and um, sanitized as the ones that we replaced them in the 50s, which are the ones that most people know. Now, were your parents big readers as well? 
Uh, my father was was a big reader. I think he kind of like had the aesthetic sense for you to kind of appreciate. So he never really had the wherewithal to, to seek out like you know, kind of interesting books. And so most of the books around the house were actually I thought were pretty crappy. But just the fact that we actually had books around the house separated us from most families is um, yeah, going to the houses of my friends and um, there'd be like you know a copy of Jaws. The dictionary, a Bible, and that'd be the family libraries. It's like absolutely shocked. Uh, you know, my parents, you know, they had a bunch of Reader's Digest condensed books and stuff. I mean, it's not great literature, but nonetheless, they had a lot, comparatively, a lot of books. And then, of course, I got more books than they did <laughs> at an early age. And my sister was um, pretty good, too, because she's never attained the heights that I did. Can I ask, how big is your personal library now? Oh, I always say after the first 5,000, you stop counting. So I'd say it's somewhere between, between five and 10,000 books. Kind of hard to say. It's like, you know, the fact it's limited by the fact that I you live in a relatively um, small apartment. I actually live in San Francisco proper, and um, you know, I can only afford a place so big, and you only get so many books in there. And I do have enough restraint that um, the books haven't completely taken over the living space. Do you have like a philosophy for every book in one gets pitched? Anything like that to kind of keep things in check? No. Yeah, and I periodically get rid of books, and I've really um. You know, you know, my book buying has really tapered down down over the last last ten years or so because yeah, basically I have more books than I'm ever going to be able to read in my life. So yeah, there's not a real compelling need to buy more, although I still do. But I don't need to go out and get as many. And, and I have so many great books that I haven't read yet that yeah, I just I try to avoid temptation by not going to the bookstores all the time. How are your books organized? It, it's fairly chaotic. Sometimes I get books actually they're kind of shelved by size. So they get the maximum number of books in the minimum amount of space. Like you know, all the um, all the um, paperbacks are shelved on paperback size shelves. You know the normal size hardbacks are normal size hardback shelves. The oversized are in hard, oversized hardback shelves. And you know, so, you know certain collections of writers get consolidated together in some things. But um, yeah, I can spend like a week looking for a book. And um, some, sometimes it's easier for me to um, check a book out for the li- from the library. Or go out and buy a new one than it is to find the um, find the copy that I have. That's incredible. It's embarrassing, actually. <laughs> we talked a bit about this last time. Would you consider yourself more a collector or a reader or a bit of both? Well, I, I remember I used this illustration several years ago. I picked up a copy of a book by one of my favorite writers from the the 30s, and I got it home and realized it was not first edition, but you know the book only had a few editions. I opened it up and realized the pages were uncut. Mm-hmm. I think this is what divides the um, collector from the reader. I mean, the true reader would just like um, get out their their, um, their their knife and cut the pages and read the book. Yeah. And the true collector would not even consider such a thing. I have enough of both in me that I was seriously torn. I fortunately, I found a copy of another edition. But, you know, I do know people that um, the books are just, they could be like um, baseball cards. It's just, just obvious. And I, I do have some, a fair, a fair amount of appreciation for like a first edition or so. But, you know, frequently I'm quite happy with like a reprint or something I can read. You know, probably about like um, 90% of the books I have um, are books I it would like to read at some point. They're not books there for the, the historical importance or the rarity. Uh, I, I love them primarily as things to be read. Of course, my reading technique is so good that I can do not do any damage when I do read. <laughs> do you eat like? Are you very careful around books? Like you don't eat around them. You don't open them up all the way. Is, is that something you're conscious of? I, I'm very delicate. 
about it. And um, when it comes to loaning books, I have this whole hierarchy of, of loaning. Um, it starts out, I, I loan someone with a book that I call a thrift store book. That's something I can just replace, you can get for replace at any thrift store. And if the book comes back in an acceptable condition, you know, you know, they'll graduate to something you can pick up in a used bookstore. Mm -hmm. And gradually, you know, I have lent out, like, I do have some rare limited edition books, and I have lent those to some people who kind of climb the hierarchy. And then I have girlfriends that never got past the thrift store books. <laughs> have you lost a friend? Like, have any friendships been fallen apart over this kind of thing? Not really. I've never, it's never really been a problem. People generally recognize that, you know, borrowing books and can be fraught. And so it's, it's never really been a problem. I just, it's some people I've had to turn down, but they've taken it well. Just from reading some of the early back issues of Murder Can Be Fun, uh, I know crime fiction stuff like Charles Williford and Jim Thompson and Frederick Brown is like was was and maybe is your bread and butter. Are you still into that kind of thing? Absolutely. I mean, I made a wonderful discovery a couple of years ago that I can take a Frederick Brown book that I read in high school and um, I can read it. And I know this is a book I loved, but it's been so long, I can't remember who done it. So it's just like it's the best reading experience. You know it's going to be good. You know, all the pleasure and all the surprise. It's not a well. It doesn't feel like a well-trod path. Do you keep up with newer hard-boiled crime fiction writers? Yeah, you know, I do. I do have a, a couple library cards, and I do use them. I usually try to go to the library once a month and pick up a few books. I, I will cruise by the um, the new releases thing. If something looks interesting, I'll grab it. Um, I have a little, little book club with a couple friends. You know, the only rule of the book club is it has to be a new author, relatively new author that none of us have ever heard of that we can get the library. We read a book a month. This is something we started during the pandemic. Oh, awesome. What other, any other criteria? Does it have to be, is it like genre fiction stuff or is it kind of across the board? It's strictly mysteries. So far, we've pretty much hated every book we've picked. I love it. <laughs> any ones you especially hated? I don't even remember. Book clubs are good for, I mean, people bond over just dumping on a book or an author as well, too. It does bring people together. There's an appeal to that, isn't there? Yeah, no. And it's just, you know, the whole point of the book club is to um, get us out of our comfort zone. Are there genres, authors that you've just never been interested in, would never touch? Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I used to like science fiction a lot when I was a teenager, but I you know, don't have much interest in it anymore. I, actually, I really hate Westerns. You don't like Westerns? Okay. You do not like... And the really weird thing is one of the one of my other interests is um, old time radio, and I love listening to the old radio shows. Uh, the, you, you Canadians have got it so lucky because the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has so many great shows. Oh, cool! I I'll have to check them out. Yeah, I've it's a blind spot for me. And but you know the, the old Americans. I actually a lot of the um, what what they what were termed you know adult westerns, not what you'd call an adult western now, but. Western radio shows are aimed at an adult audience. I really actually enjoy those. Mm. When I um, watch a Western TV show or a um, read a Western novel, I just cannot get into it. One really weird thing is you know, a lot of the TV show Gunsmoke, that was based on a radio show, which I adore. Mm -hmm. And I, I checked out some DVDs of the, of the TV show and you know, episodes that were based on radio shows that I enjoyed, I did not like. That's interesting. I wonder, have you ever been the guy to stay away from, oh, you have to read this, therefore you, you kind of run in the opposite direction? I actually, well, my relationship to literary fiction, I mean, some of my favorite novels are considered literary fiction, but um, 
my personal batting average with literary fiction is very low. It's, you know, probably about you know ninety percent of the um, literary novels that I pick up, I really, really dislike. And uh, but you know, the ten percent that I um, enjoy, I really, really enjoy. So that, that's what keeps me keeps me trying. So uh, yeah, I, I do have like a little, you know, a perverse sense that uh, I do prefer to like go after the um, the overlooked author, the underrated author, the cult. It's something described under overlooked, underrated cult. I mean, I, I do have a tendency to go that way, but I'm not opposed to like um, someone who's um, selling a lot of books is sometimes really good books sell really well. I think, well, this is actually, a, he's a genre writer, but uh, Michael Connolly. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he sells tons and um, I think he's great. The Bosch ones, are, they're still good. Like, I, I, I don't think they're as good as they used to be, mm-hmm. but I, I still read every two or three of them and they're fantastic. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, like I say, it's kind of going down. And I'm not too wild about his new character. Um, you know, still okay. And also part of the reason I shy away from a lot of um, recent books is they're so goddamn long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's well, long. lost the knack for getting to the point. Yes, you know, one of the problems um, we have with our book club is we, we try to keep them under 300 pages. And it's really hard to find recent genre fiction that's under 300 pages. Did you ever want to write fiction yourself? Yes, I, I, w- I would like to try my hand at fiction, um, but I ha- haven't gotten around. To, well, actually, let me backtrack. I actually wrote a true confession story many years ago. I sold it to um, True Confessions. And I just never got around to following it up with anything else. I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with True Confession magazines, but uh, they're all published anonymously. It's all supposed to be true stories. And I'm making their quotes. And do these magazines still exist? I believe they do, barely. You know, even in, when I sold my story in the 80s, they were difficult to find on San Francisco newsstands because their primary market is like um, yeah, in rural rural areas and in the Midwest. Let's talk about punk. How did you get into punk, John? I've always been um, kind of a, a, a book guy. I mean, I certainly, um, yeah, any teenager, I certainly had an affection for rock and roll. And I started seeing like little notices in the paper talking about this you know, punk rock thing. And it sounded very interesting. And I had the good fortune in my high school, there was a couple kids who were like um, real train spotting types that uh, were, you know, you know, you know, one of them, you know, was like buying Sparks records when he was in high, when he was a freshman in high school. And it's like about 1975, wow. which... You know, pretty, you know, pretty visionary, I think. I mean, certainly, I, I had no idea who Sparks was. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, him and his friends, um, they, they, they got into punk and started going to the shows in San Francisco. And they um, booked a concert in my high school um, with the Dead Kennedys before they had released their first record. And, um, they, of course, the Dead Kennedys played under an assumed name because um, I don't think people can really appreciate how shocking the name Dead Kennedys was in, like, 1978. I mean, some newspapers wouldn't even publish the name back then. I, I believe it. Yeah, absolutely. How did that show go over, even with a fake name? Like, how, how did that go over with, like, the school uh, administration? The school administration took it pretty well. Um, you know, the, no one got in any trouble. Um, it was a great show, sort of like that, you know, half the people left as soon as the music started because they hated it. <laughs> the other half loved it. And then the other, the other thing kind of that got me into punk, I'm not sure if this came before or after the show, 
the Dead Kennedys show. But um, you know, Devo performed on Saturday Night Live, which is something I watched religiously. Um, this is his first season. It was like you know, the coolest thing on television. And you know, Devo performed. And it was, you know, was like completely unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I just like absolutely loved it. I mean, it was like my um, Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment. Did you ever get into kind of artier San Francisco bands like The Sleepers or Tuxedo Moon or Tragic Mulatto? Yeah, um, I really loved those bands. I, I, I only saw Tuxedo Moon a few times. Um, I saw, actually, it wasn't too wild about Tragic Mulatto, although I saw them a bunch of times. They're sort of like inescapable. I would have loved to have seen the sleepers. I, mm-hmm. They're like very high on my list of bands that I w- could have wish I could have seen. Yeah, I did have the good fortune of seeing um, their lead singer, um, Ricky Williams, perform many times with another one of my favorite local bands, the Toiling Midgets. Oh, they're amazing. Yeah. Ricky Williams no, is I, such a great singer. Yeah, no, he's like one of the, but he's just like a, a complete mess as a person. Um, the, um, Guitarist for um, the Sleepers, uh, Michael Belfort, just wrote a book. It's it's very very good. I really enjoyed it. I recommend it highly. But one of the things he said is like there, there's a rumor that um, Joy Division was um, consider, considering um, Ricky Williams as um, a replacement for Ian Curtis. No way. That's- yeah, I don't. They don't, they don't know if it's true or not. But you know, I think they made the right move by not doing it. It's like, he would not be. He's not an easy person to get to um, have in your band. That's not the sense I get. Yeah, can you imagine though? That would have been sick. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie that film um, "Louder, Faster, Shorter"? No. Are you Are you familiar with them? Um, you know, probably research, search and destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, they um, put put out this film. Um, that was filmed at the local punk club, the Mabuhe Gardens in 1978, um, a bunch of bands playing a benefit for some striking coal miners in Kentucky. And one of the bands is, actually I think the best band in the, um, in that they filmed was the Sleepers. I'm not surprised. I've, I've seen some live footage on YouTube and mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's them in their prime, but it's, it's still amazing. Yeah. No, I say I was just so, so just so bummed. I never got a chance to see them. What was the vibe at uh, at gigs in Northern California? Everybody knows about the vibe in Southern California punk rock, but what was Northern California like? Northern California was not as violent, nearly as violent as Southern California. Um, I think I recommended last time that book, um, "Discos Out, Murders In." Mm-hmm. Yes, and some, you know, one of the um, you know, punk rock gang kids writing about his exploits. Um, kind of exact. I'm sure it was exaggerated. But um, you know, people actually got killed in Southern in Southern California. That sort of stuff never happened in Northern California. There was never a um, a major punk rock riot in um, in Northern California that I know of. You know, whereas in Southern California, you know, there'd be regularly like major confrontations with the police, um, buildings being completely trashed by rampaging kids. Um, it was really wild. But you know, Northern California. You know, um, you know, certainly the early the early punk scene was not violent at all. It was just you know very, you know, it was primarily driven by you know art students and like a bohemian types, and then um, and I, I caught a, a bit of that, and then in the early eighties, um, you know, you hardcore brought in a more violent um, and younger element from the suburbs, and things got rougher, but um, not to the point where um, I think anyone really had to feel uncomfortable about being at a gig. Yes, you might not be able to be in the front row or in the pit 
um, is you couldn't take the, um, the, you know, the, the contact from this thrashing. But um, there's no reason why you couldn't be standing around in the back and enjoy the show. At one point, though, there, you know, there did become, become a problem with skinheads, which are basically um, you know, organized bull bullying gangs. And they would, they would assault people. You know, there weren't a lot of them, but they were enough to cause, cause a lot of problems. Yeah. But it was not nearly um, to the magnitude they had in Southern California. And you also volunteered at Maximum Rock and Roll magazine. What were you doing there as a volunteer? Yeah. I am. I volunteered. Started working at Maximum Rock and Roll. I think about issue three or issue four, and I was just what they call a shit worker. And I just um, whatever they, you know, administrative stuff needed doing. Um, basically, you know, typing up interviews, um, lay, mainly doing layout. We'd have Sunday meetings and we'd lay out the magazine. You know, some editing occasionally. Um, you know, processing mail and um, you know, it's basically hanging out. It's a really really fun thing to do. I really enjoyed enjoyed that. What was Tim Yohannan like? Did you have much interaction with him? Yeah, Tim was a yeah. I liked him. I mean, I I do not agree with Tim's politics. I mean, I consider myself to be um, a reasonably liberal person. But you know, Tim was a you know an out and out. Well, he was you know, an extremely a serious leftist. Almost, people accuse him of being a Stalinist. We never really talked politics just because we were fairly far apart mm -hmm. on that. But. You know, I, I, it wasn't really in my purview to um, argue politics. So basically, it was his magazine, so you know, his his politics you know, drove the show. But he was he was a fun, a, a really enjoyable guy to hang out with. He was incredibly energetic. He put so much work into that magazine and built it into something that was fairly enduring. I was never really a close friend of his, but um, you know, yeah, I did hang out with him a lot uh, when I was working on the magazine and. Um, well, the weird thing about Tim is he didn't cut up any shows, or at least by the time I started work, he started the magazine, he it really cut back on going to shows. He's always at home, either watching Perry Mason or um, working <laughs> on the magazine. Now I have this picture of, in my head of Tim O'Hannon watching Perry Mason pasting up like issues of medics from rock and roll. I'll probably never be able to forget that. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Giving up ads. You know, the happiest, you know, one of Tim's eccentricities is he always put gold, green tape around the edges of all of his records. Huh. He started doing this when he was a kid and he continued in his adulthood and it's always one brand of um, green tape, Mystic. He couldn't find it at the stores. He went to the distributors. They stopped making it. They were all out of it. And I was at a flea market one day and I see all this green Mystic tape and so I go to the phone and Hey Tim, I see this. There's this green Mystic tape. Is that the stuff you're looking for? And he goes, "Oh my God, buy it all!" <laughs> yes, I got him like in you know, thirty or forty rolls, and he's happiest I ever saw. I love that. Did you come across? Did you run in the same circles as Aaron Comet Bus of Comet Bus fame? Yeah, no, I went to um, I went to college at, at Berkeley where Aaron grew up, and so I, you know, you know, Aaron was just like a twelve-year-old kid running around, hanging out on. on you know, the, the student street in Berkeley, Telegraph Avenue. So yeah, I was always seeing him around and he liked going to the punk shows, even though he, he was kind of a long haired kid. I mean, to this day, I, my mental image of Aaron is any little 12 year old. So when I actually see him these days, and he's, he's a pretty big guy, it's, just, it's very disconcerting. He's, he's got the drummer kind of arms as well too. He's, I've met him once and he's, he's fairly jacked, right? For yeah, this no, beatnik punk guy. And um, he used to hang out in this um, 
really amazing arcade in Berkeley called Silverball Gardens. He was a phenomenal Pac-Man pinball player. <laughs> it's this pinball machine that uh, had a Pac-Man theme and had a video game mode. And it's just amazing what he could do on that machine. Is I just like, you know, um, put my quarter in and like, you know, five balls, I was out. And then he, and he, was, he started doing his little zine and you know, he'd, every time he did an issue, he'd, he'd give you this issue and it'd just be like microscopic you know, handwriting. Um, and you'd read it, it'd be like interviews with you know, you know, really terrible local bands. You know, I swear he actually interviewed bands that never actually made it into the rehearsal studio. Just kids and we're sitting on Berkeley High talking about just starting a band. I, I think he would interview them. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and so you'd like look at it and say, yeah, yeah, yeah thank you, Aaron. You look at it a little bit and you throw it away. And you know, a couple of years later, I was at Maximum Rock and Roll, and there's there a little bit larger Comet bus. There's one where he wrote about um, going to Sweden. And I was reading it, and it's like, it's this boring stuff. I mean, he's just basically walking around Stockholm, um, doing nothing, you know, pretty much bored out of his skull. Well, not so much bored, but it's like, you know, there's this band playing, it's like pretty good, and just wandering around and it should be boring stuff, but it's just absolutely fascinating. It's like, my God, this kid really has something. Mm -hmm. It's really great. So that's when I started, I'm picking up Comet Bus. And yeah, I do know, do know Aaron, like, you know, you saw that interview and, you know, I, you, we ran, we basically ran in the same circles, but and because I was in college and he was you know, barely in high school, I really didn't like just hang out with him that much. But you were kind of like him in that, at least your approach to scenes, you were, kind of rooted in a punk aesthetic, but you want to do something different. What you were doing wasn't a fan scene. So what inspired you? When did you get the idea of doing Murder Can Be Fun? It's kind of hard to say when I actually got the idea. Uh, this has been a long time. But uh, certainly, well, I, I do, I've always had this really strong, you know, somewhat um, offbeat um, literary interest. And I tell people about these things, and they, especially in the punk scene, and then people say, that sounds kind of interesting. And so I you know, developed this conviction that, you know, this, this punk aesthetic, I mean, um, I could like, you know, bring something else to the punk scene you know, that wasn't just music. You know, something, cause, you know, you can't like um, listen to records and go to shows all the time. It's nice to read books or like um, read about, you know, real life events that kind of like you know, fit into the whole thing. And so I thought I'd, I'd do a zine to write about my favorite disasters and my favorite um, murders and my favorite books. Yeah, you know, certainly working with that maximum rock and roll kind of gave me an, an understanding of the mechanics of like I'm doing layout. You know, also, I'd worked in a wonderful used bookstore in Oakland um, when I was in college for um, about six months. And I remember this store at this time, this guy came in selling this astrology book. The manager took took a bunch of copies and he told me, yeah, that's, and that guy really has it down. Like any idiot can publish a book. The trick is to get it distributed. And so, you know, you maximum rock and roll, um, you know, kind of mechanics. And then I started hearing about you know, various fanzines that reviewed other fanzines, which kind of suggested how I could distribute the thing. And that's when I started um, um, putting together the fanzine. My first issue, I did 100 copies. What was the reception like after of the first issue? A few, you know, I, I, got, I got some letters. Some people liked it. So, you know, you know, nothing overwhelming didn't change my life. I never had that dream of like walking into the post office and like, wow, there's like 30 letters today. <laughs> there's never this big explosion, but it's just a gradual build. And it is enough of a gradual build to keep me going, reprinting the early issues. And it got to the point where I was doing 5,000 copies. 
wow, that's a really good press run. That's amazing. Well, yeah, part of the thing, though, um, when you get to the, the point where you're doing web offset, the marginal cost of um, doing an extra thousand is very, very cheap. Yes. So like, hey, if I do, it's like they're almost giving me another thousand. So I'll get 2,000 more, <laughs> which is why everyone who does a publication that goes to web offset sooner or later winds up with a warehouse full of back issues. You're talking a bit about distribution. I'd love to hear more about that and how are you getting the word out about Murder Can Be Fun and getting copies into people's hands? Okay, well, in the basic um, model that I started out with was to um, get reviewed at, reviewed in as many places as possible. So you know, any zine that I knew of that did zine reviews, I would send a copy to. Flipside was the one, that I, one thing I remember, but the real big thing was Fact Sheet 5. I think... More than anything else, Fact Sheet 5 ignited the um, zine boom of the um, 80s and 90s. Have you, have you seen Fact Sheet 5? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I picked up one or two issues. It was a little sort of before my time, and I know it had a second life as well, too. Yeah, no, Fact Sheet 5 actually went through three eras. Um, the first era was published by this guy, Mike Gunderloy. And he sort of like took it from being a, just a relatively small zine, not much bigger than Murder Can Be Fun, into a fairly large, you know, large circulation zine. Because in the world before the internet, it was really, really hard to find out about anything that was like a little bit off center. I mean, you're, you're basically your literary consumption was confined to like what you find in the local store or at the local news, which is it's still going to be a pretty limited selection. But then. But one of my favorite things to illustrate how desperate people were, there actually used to be a catalog of mail order catalogs. People would pay money for this catalog and it'd be just a listing of like specialized mail order catalogs. And you have to pay for those catalogs. <laughs> you know, um, but you get all these obscure catalogs. And yeah, I remember actually ordering like this catalog of like um, false bottom boxes and stuff, which is kind of interesting stuff. But, is that, that just illustrates how difficult it was to track down something that it would just take you, um, you know, two seconds and Google search these things. So anyway, for zines, Faction 5 was it. And um, you get a good review in Faction 5, it, it really spread the word. Once you got the word going, then back in the um, 80s and 90s, you know, every college town had like a little, um, little record store that sold t-shirts, and a lot of them sold zines. It records for they were they sell the punk records and the t-shirts and, and a lot of them would have, it also sells zines. You know, a lot of them would call me up and um, say, "Hey, we'd like to carry your zine." And um, dealing with them was a little bit difficult because uh, most of them, you know, weren't very good business people. I'd say. Yeah. Um, the, the the big exception to that was um, the C here, um, the, the zine store in New York. It's That's basically right. one of, one of these little stores that. Um, no records. Yeah, I think they probably have some T-shirts, but nothing. This is this little tiny, um, uh, below street level uh, space in the East Village, and um, he ran a real tight ship. Very well, small but very well organized store. People set up zines, and if they sold, he'd reorder. Mm-hmm. Which is something most of these stores like you, you, you send you send your typical store some zines. You don't hear from me, call them about, about a few months later. Oh, yeah, we sold them. Can you send us some more? Um, where's Ted? Like, they sold them. He'd be on the horn to you like um, next week saying, hey, I sold the 10, send me 20. And it got to the point where he was, he was selling like 100 or 200 bucks worth of zines to him uh, a month. 
Wow. Yeah, like almost every month, like clockwork, I'd send, send, send a big box to him. But of course, because he, I did a good, good business and back issues. What was your relationship like with Tower Records? Tower Records, that was the other thing. That, that came later. Um, Doug Bigger was a man with a great eye for um, good offbeat stuff. I mean, I don't know if you ever shopped at Tower Records, um, but um, the book section was amazing. Oh, yeah. I love Tower. Yeah, he is. Because this guy, Doug Bigger, very, very odd guy. Great eye for stuff. And, and so, yeah, he'd, he'd call you up. I remember one time he called me up at, on Christmas Eve at 5 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, and he was like the, the only guy in this, the big Tower Records complex at West Sacramento. I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, and John. And, and we talked about 20 minutes and he ordered a couple hundred bucks worth of zines. And, um, and they, they also paid. They were great. Can you talk about the research process behind the articles? They were pretty involved. Pre-internet, research was very difficult. It's, it's one of the criteria I had for um, picking an article or a, t- a topic to write about um, I had to have access to um, some sort of um, information that um, the general public didn't have. Like uh, a lot of the articles started because I had like a, a rare book or read, found a citation to an obscure article or, you know, some stuff just because I had access to the, um, the, the newspaper collection at the Eustisburg Library, which was very extensive, long runs of newspapers, especially local California newspapers. And um, you know, searching through them could be an eye-bleeding experience because um, before the internet, very few newspapers were indexed outside of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the illustrations of how the internet changed things, when I did my original Death at Disneyland article when I ran in 1992, it took me months to track down all the deaths because there was um, no index covering the 1960 um, in, in, for a California newspaper. So if something didn't make the New York Times, you're basically on your own. And um, at one point, for a couple of deaths, I actually had to look through the Orange County Register day by day, uh, looking at the front page of the local news section, looking for the the headline, you know, death at local local amusement park. What a strange labor of love, eh? Yeah. Yes. And then when I um, updated the Disneyland article for my final issue in 2007, I went online to the Orange County Register news news set, website, spent like $20 on articles. I did it on my lunch hour at work. And did you have a favorite article that you wrote? Well, the Death at Disneyland thing is probably my favorite article. It's the best thing I, I, I ever wrote and probably ever will write. And I'm quite happy with that. It's very, I think it's a really good article. I mean, it's just such a wonderful idea. You, you really can't miss. Everyone loves that piece. <laughs> and I do too. Yeah, the people being run over by the people mover moves at three miles an hour <laughs> and people falling out of the Matterhorn bobsled in the happiest place to happen to you. know, it's, yeah. Yeah, other favorites. You know, certainly, you know, the article about the, um, the glass factory disaster and the sports issue where the football fans watching the, um, Watching the football game from the roof of a warehouse across the street from the stadium, and the roof collapsed, and they discovered they were over a red hot glass furnace. I mean, that's a story I really loved. It's a very good story, and, and it's a very good centerfold as well. Yeah, that, that was one I started. I just you know saw a brief reference someplace. Uh, so it happened at the um, the Cal Stanford um, rivalry football games. Something I've lived in the San Francisco area all my life, and those are the two major universities. I was just amazed when I saw that little blurb about it that I'd never heard about this story. 
And even there's like some, I read a few history books about um, California football and Stanford football that didn't even mention that. Two dozen people are getting killed across the street from the game. That. <laughs> you know, overall, my best issue was, I think, the Dottie Children issue. One of the things that's always routinely infuriated me about the media is these periodic flaps about, like, violent video games are making my kids into criminal or our kids into criminals. Um, sex ed is driving this, all this media stuff is making kids do horrible things. Yeah, the Naughty Children, I just dedicated it to... Um, Kids from the so-called good old days, the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th century, the early 20th century, before there was TV or even radio, just doing absolutely horrible things that would not be out of place in like, you know, the, you know, the most perverse um, serial killer in today's headlines. Yeah, but there's no media as a scapegoat. They're, these are just reprobate kids, basically. Well, you know, they actually, um, you know, the, 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 the real, the Jesse Pomeroy, who is the really young teenager who committed a series of um, you know, sexually sadistic assaults on um, young boys and young girls. He killed a couple of them. You know, they blamed that on dime novels. And uh, believe me, he didn't get those ideas from dime novels. Dime novels were, you know, you know, I've gotten a few hints, but yeah, what he was doing, that's, yeah, that, you don't read about that in a dime novel. Who was into this stuff, John? Who was your readership? What was readership response like? It was a very broad range from like, you know, people who thought they were serial killers, um, prisoners to like, um, you know, you know, transgressive culture types, you know, some lawyers, a judge that was a very close friend of John Waters, was one of my subscribers. Yeah, it was, just, it was, a, it was a real um, cross-section of, you know, actually it wasn't a real cross-section, it was a diverse group, not a cross-section, I mean, certainly. I don't think I have a lot of, um, you know, serious religious or conservative types. And what did your parents think of the zine? My father was a cop and who became, later became a lawyer. Uh, but he, he appreciated it. He, he had a very dark sense of humor. And uh, my mother kind of always, you know, she, you know, sort of, sort of you know, wanted me to write something nice. <laughs> There's still time for that. It can happen. <laughs> there was a comic book version of Murder Can Be Fun that I know very little about. Can you talk a bit about that? Okay, yeah, that was um, put out by this um, local outfit. Um, they're based in San Jose called Slave Labor Graphics. And um, they, they basically contacted me and I said, yeah, I'd be happy to have you do a Murder Committee Fun comic book. I just don't want anything to do with it. It's, I am most emphatically not a comic book person. I've never been really interested in comic books. You know, I, re I read them a little bit as a kid and yeah, I, I pick up the occasional graphic novel, but you know, my only involvement um, with, with the comic book was a, I just said, you know, pick whatever you want. They wanted me to write a short little prose piece for each issue, which I did. Some of their artists adapted my stories, and some people did um, original stories um, that were had the same themes. And the results, you know, not being a comic expert, book expert, I can't comment on, really offer an informed opinion, but uh, my comic book friend says, you know, some of them are pretty good. You know, they, they didn't have any, you know, they admit they didn't have an enormous amount of money to put into these things. So, um, you know, basically my payment, they, they sent me a box of each issue and I would, um, would sell those. And they told me, you know, they, they made more money on the t-shirt. <laughs> I hope they sent you a box of those too. They sent me a couple t-shirts too. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I um, mean, you know, you know, Dan Vado is a real nice guy and, um, Craig, whose name is last name escaped me, who's sort of the editor. Um, and he was a fun guy to hang out with too. So yeah, it was, it was an enjoyable experience, but, um, 
Yeah, it's, they're not essential. Some of the covers are amazing. I think Evan Dorkin did a cover of one issue, and um, Johanan Vasquez from Johnny the Homicidal Maniac did another cover. It was beautiful. What are some zines that you remember fondly from the late 80s and 90s? Yeah, yeah I don't want to be, you know, being too much um, you know, love rolling for my friends, but certainly, like, you know, my friend Lynn Perrell's zine, you know, Mystery Date, I truly loved. Um, Al Hoff's Chris Score was a great zine. Um, this other zine, Sydney Soupy's um, Quarterly and Confused Pet Monthly was a good one. Hmm. Um, of course, you know, I adored, once I discovered, rediscovered Comet Bus, I adored that. And I certainly enjoyed some of the punk rock fanzines, although you know, not so much. Um, one zine, I, local zine I really love is this thing called Pathetic Life. It was um, written by this self-described um, fat slob. It's a personal zine. He basically wrote about his life. It took its title from his ex-girlfriend telling him, you have a pathetic life. <laughs> and he was just, just a really great writer. And he lived in San Francisco for a while, and then he moved to Berkeley, and he's since I actually I absolutely treasure those zines. What do you think is the legacy of Murder Can Be Fun? That's a good question. I really, I don't really know if it has a legacy or not. I guess you know some people seem to like it, and I do need to um, get an anthology together and get it in a more permanent form so it, it can have a legacy. Yeah, I kind of gave the idea on how to do a zine to some other people, and I'm very happy, very happy and proud about that. And I think I just you know you know gave exposure to um, some great stories that I hope um, people appreciate as much as I did. A huge thank you to John for taking the time to chat. Please do yourself a favor and visit murdercanbefun.com, where you can order a bunch of back issues directly from John. As always, I appreciate you taking the time to listen and support this podcast. Thank you. Please reach out anytime. I would love to hear from you. And the best way to do that is to message us on Twitter at RockRitPod. Take care until next time.